0: How do you handle your doubts? How do you handle your doubts? Now I know you have So what do you do with your doubts? Do you ignore them and pretend they aren't there? Or do you express them and then seek to address them? Now that's what John the Baptist did and I'm glad he did. Because his willingness to express his doubts openly gave Jesus the opportunity to teach us how to address our doubts. Let's see what we can learn about addressing doubts this morning. And let's jump right in by first addressing doubts about Jesus. We're in Matthew chapter 11. And it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. After Jesus instructed his apostles, he sent them out. Not to relieve him of the work, but to expand it. So now, in addition to himself, there were six teams of two men preaching and teaching throughout the cities of Galilee. More people were hearing the message, more people were being healed, and Jesus' reputation was growing. Word of his works... Even made its way to the prison of Machiris, located some 80 miles south of Galilee on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. It was a summer palace of Herod Antipas, king or tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. A year or so earlier, Herod had imprisoned John the Baptist there because he had had the nerve to publicly confront the king about his adulterous and incestuous marriage with Herodias, his half-brother's wife, and his own niece. Well, John was hearing about Jesus' work in Galilee. But something about it disturbed him. You know, John had declared, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather up his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John had declared a message of judgment. He said the axe was already laid at the root of the trees. But now he was in prison. And Jesus was preaching good news. And healing people. That's not what John had expected. So he sent two of his disciples to Galilee to confront Jesus. And to ask are you the expected one, the coming one, or shall we look for someone else? Now, that question has shocked believers for 2,000 years. You know, How could John the Baptist ask such a thing? He's the one who had baptized Jesus. He had seen the Holy Spirit descend as a dove. Upon Jesus. He had heard the voice from heaven declare, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And now he's asking, Are you the coming one? Now, some who refuse to believe that John could really be asking such a question suggest he's merely asking for the sake of his disciples. No, they had doubts, and John wanted them to get the answers they needed. But there's no indication in the text that that's the case. Everything points to John and his doubts about Jesus. His expectations hadn't been met. And in spite of everything he knew, he was having doubts. Fortunately, he didn't ignore them or cover them up with unconvincing pontifications of orthodoxy. He went directly to Jesus as best he could, given his imprisonment, and asked, Are you the coming one or not? He hadn't ruled Jesus out. He just wasn't sure anymore. I love Jesus' answer. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Jesus recognized that some would stumble over him. That they would have a hard time hanging on to their faith in him. That he wouldn't always meet their expectations. But they would be blessed if they didn't stumble over him. And to help keep John from stumbling, Jesus simply told his disciples, Go and report to John what you hear and see. He wasn't offended By John's doubts. He didn't demean him for his audacity to raise questions. He simply told them to tell John what they had witnessed. And then, using words that would bring to mind supporting prophecies, pointed out what it was they were hearing and seeing. You know, in writing of the Messiah, and his coming, Isaiah had said in chapter 35 that the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf would be unstopped, the lame would leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb would shout for joy. And in the 61st chapter, he had said the Messiah would bring good news to the afflicted and would bind up the brokenhearted. John had apparently forgotten those aspects. Of the Messiah's coming. He was thinking of judgment. And judgment wasn't happening. At least not as quickly. As he had expected it. Now if he would go back. And re-study the Isaiah passages. Jesus alluded to. He would discover. That both passages did mention. That God would come. With vengeance. That recompense of God. Would come. But that's not all the Messiah would do. John had simply lost sight of the total picture. His immediate circumstances had narrowed his vision, and Jesus wasn't doing what he thought he should be doing at that moment. And so the doubts came. But they were answered, I'm sure. As John re-examined his expectations, re-examined the testimony of others, and re-examined the scriptures. And that same procedure will work for us if we'll address our doubts about Jesus the same way. We begin by re-examining our expectations. Are they unfounded? Are we expecting Him to do more or less than He promised to do? And if we lost sight of the big picture, are we only looking at what He's doing relative to us and our immediate situation If so, we need to broaden our perspective by re-examining the testimony of others. Look again at what he's doing in their lives. Let's see if he isn't accomplishing a whole lot more than we thought he was doing. And then let's re-examine the Scriptures. Let's see again exactly what he said he would do. And let's rebuild our faith and confidence in him on his word. Not on our misconceived ideas about him. That's how we address our doubts about Jesus. And they do come when we don't think he's doing what he ought to be doing for us. Address them. Address them the way Jesus Told John to address his. And that's how Jesus told the multitudes to address their doubts about John. This is interesting. 7 through 15. And as they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the laws prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think Jesus knew that the multitudes would be shocked by John's doubts. And that would make them entertain doubts about him. And so he addressed them, head on. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A a reed shaken by the wind? A, A vacillating, wavering blade of swamp grass that blows one way and the other and never stands firm? Did you go to the wilderness to see a pampered, polished politician who never stands for anything and is always flip-flopping? No. You went to see a prophet. And more than a prophet. You saw the one prophesied by Malachi who was to be sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. In fact, you saw the greatest messenger ever sent from God. Until now. He then went on to note something interesting. He noted that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now, what he meant by that is debatable, but I believe he was indicating that any Christian would be a better witness than John because he would be able to look back at the cross and would therefore have a better understanding of of Christ's purpose in coming. But up until that moment, John was the greatest messenger ever born. And his ministry had been very effective. From the beginning of his ministry until that day, the kingdom of God had been forcefully advancing. I think that's a better translation than suffers violence. But violent men were trying to stop it and control it, were fighting against it. And John had hit a brick wall, literally, in the dungeons of Machiris. His confidence had been shaken, but they were not to question and doubt his prophetic call. In fact, all the prophets and the law itself pointed to John, who had come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. But even Elijah, if they would remember, had his moment of doubt, his crisis of faith. After his most glorious moment on the mountain, defeating the prophets of Baal, he ran from Jezebel crawled under a juniper tree and wanted to die. He thought all of God's people had forsaken him and he was the only one left. Well, God reignited his faith by showing him there were still 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal and that he was calling the shots, not Elijah. But John was having a similar crisis of faith, but there was no need to doubt his call from God. Jesus restored the people's faith in John by causing them to re-examine their expectations of a prophet, by re-examining the testimony about John, and by re-examining the scriptures themselves. The same way He had addressed John's doubts about him. In fact, the same thing can be done to address doubts about anyone. Let's read on. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax-gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. You know, we can all be pretty fickle there are times when we don't even know what we want. In fact, Jesus compared us to children playing in the street. Someone plays dancing music, but we don't want to dance. So they start singing a sad song, but we don't want to be sad. When John came on the scene living an ascetic life of a prophet. The people said he was crazy. He had a demon. He didn't enjoy life. But when Jesus came, socializing, going to wedding receptions and banquets, they said he was a glutton and a drunkard. They condemned him for being friendly with the wrong kind of people, of course. They didn't like everything about John and what he did, so they had their doubts about him. And they didn't like everything Jesus did. So they had their doubts about him. They, in no doubt, would have had their doubts about anyone. You know, it's so easy to begin having second thoughts about others. To begin doubting their sincerity, or their motives, or their suitability. One day we think we're happy with someone. They're a good friend. Or a respected teacher or preacher or politician. Or even a beloved spouse. But the next day, we're not so sure. Something was said or done or not said or done that we expected or didn't expect. And we begin to wonder. Before long, whatever it was that raised our doubts, began to dominate our thinking about that person. Rather than viewing him as being just a little eccentric, now he has a demon. Instead of being friendly and fun-loving, now he's a glutton and a drunkard. Instead of being a strong leader, now he's domineering. Instead of being carefree, Now he's unconcerned. On and on we go. Entertaining doubts about others. And then writing them off. Deciding we don't want to play with them anymore. Or work with them. Or live with them. Now there may be times when our doubts are justified and some action needs to be taken. There are some relationships that perhaps should be severed. But we must be very careful here. Let's not be like fickle children. Now, Jesus said wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. I think that means we need to use wisdom when evaluating someone. And that our wisdom is evidenced by the way we use it. So let's make sure we use wisdom... When addressing our doubts, before we write someone off, let's re-examine our expectations. Maybe we're expecting too much from them. Maybe our expectations are unrealistic and no one could meet them. Let's re-examine the testimony of others about the person in question. Maybe we're being too hard on them. Maybe we need to listen to what others are saying about them. Maybe we need to look at them from someone else's perspective. And then we need to re-examine what the scriptures say about the relationship in question. If the scriptures make it clear that such a relationship is not appropriate for a Christian, we need to break it. If, on the other hand, it makes it clear that that relationship is inviolable and never to be broken, we recommit ourselves to it and make it work. If it's a relationship that can go either way, we pray for wisdom. And then apply biblical principles to make sure we make the right decision. We're going to have doubts. We're going to have doubts about Jesus. We're going to have doubts about the preacher. We're going to have doubts about our brothers and sisters. Let's just make sure we address them properly and resolve them biblically. So, are you having doubts this morning? Doubts about Jesus or others? If you are, it's time for a little self-examination. Because before you can re-examine your objectivity, you must re-examine your heart. If your heart is burdened with a load of sin, you won't be able to see things clearly. You won't be able to understand Jesus and the reason He came into the world. And you won't be able to understand the reason others fail you and your expectations all the time. You know, it may seem counterintuitive, but faith is the key to resolving doubts. Faith that Jesus can enter our heart and enable us to see things more clearly. And like John's coming to prepare the way for Christ, we prepare for Christ coming into our heart through baptism. We acknowledge our sinfulness, and allow our hearts to be washed clean of sin. Then, when he comes into our heart, He'll enable us to see things through His eyes. He'll give us the wisdom we need to properly address our doubts and to make right choices. If you're struggling with doubts about Jesus, about others, or even about yourself, I encourage you to do what needs to be done to prepare your heart for his coming and then let Jesus come into your heart let's stand.